Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm your host, Jordan Puga, joined with my co-host, Paul Keelan. And today we're going to tackle our last Summer Olympic running theme film, Personal Best. So this is maybe our weirdest of the bunch. It's a very unique film and it is a refreshing film in the sense that it's a very feminine-based film. In our genre, right, it's so male, masculine, dominated. And this one is starring two female leads. And so we get to explore the other side of the gender universe. So before we get into the film, though, let's get into the box office. So this film was out around the same time as Chariots of Fire. So if you heard our contextual preface to that episode, you're going to hear some repeat films in this one as well. So I'll let you start off. What movies are in theaters around this time in 1982, all right? Uh, early 1982 when this comes out. All right. So in the week of March 12th to the 14th of 1982, uh, coming at number one is Richard Pryor, live on the Sunset Strip. Um, I have actually not seen this comedy. Um, I assume it's a stand-up special live. I could be wrong. He's done sorts of mo- all sorts of movies, but I haven't seen this. Uh, have you seen this one, Paul? Actually, no, I've not seen the Richard Pryor live on Sunset Strip, but I've seen clips from like all of his live sets. I love Richard Pryor. He's hilarious, manic, and an underrated actor too. His acting career is like super all over the place and in the best way. I, I'm a big Richard Pryor fan. So uh, that was number one, right? It grossed seven and a half million dollars, which today, if your number one box office film grows seven and a half million dollars, even in COVID world, we'd be in dire straight. So uh, you have to realize this is not an equivalent, right? Inflation is real. And I'm looking around, I see number four, we have Chariots of Fire, which was number two to the week before and that grossed around two million dollars and then we have a few classics on the list i know you'll probably want to talk about we have arthur which we brought up in the chariots of fire episode and i know the russell brand version of the arthur film but i've heard this one is a classic uh, i hope it's on hbo or something soon so i can watch it what else have you found on this list that struck out to you yeah so for me the ones that struck out were um death wish starring charles bronson death wish number two excuse me to clarify the sequel of death wish that came in at number five that week three the week before grossing 1.3 million even in its third week right which speaks to like the action like genre in the in this in the early 80s but I mean, Paul and I were uh, were joking around as we got kind of set up, let's set this up. I did a, like a blind guess of the plot of of Death Wish because let's be honest, it's Charles Bronson. So I mean, I'm like I've seen a lot of Charles Bronson movies as a kid. My dad used to love watching these, so these movies both like terrified and excite me because all the plots are usually the same. So I said it's probably about a female who's either murdered or raped or something horrible happened to her, um, and he's either related to her or just met her or something like that, and he's gonna kill the killers or everyone who knew the killers along the way. And uh, when we Checked on IMBD. I was, I was correct. There was someone murdered his family and his daughter, and he's going to get revenge. It's the Punisher, uh, which I think I like the Punisher so much. Now as I analyze this, I don't really like the Punisher. I think I really like Charles Bronson. Is what is how I lived through the Punisher. I think I, I've, uh, I think I've learned the, uh, you know, action and vigilantism through Charles Bronson before the Punisher. Actually, so uh, that's I think I, I connect to him. He might be one of my favorite like. 80s action stars not that i've seen a whole like i've probably seen more schwarzenegger movies more stallone movies but charles bronson thing like i said is his thing and it's it's an under it's an underrated stick is what i'm saying i I gotta say that have you seen many uh charles bronson movies i have not actually i was just about to say i'm illiterate in the charles bronson sphere and a complete philistine on his ovoir films but when you're talking about him and his shtick 
I'm thinking Liam Neeson, right? Like the Taken movies, right? He's like the equivalent to me, it sounds like, of Liam Neeson back yeah. in the day. Maybe a little tougher, but like it, you hear Liam Neeson's in a film, you know it's about like a young girl being abducted. It's, you know, his daughter or niece or something. And, <laughs> and he's just like taking names and blooding yep. faces to get her back. And <laughs> you just know the plot pretty much the Liam Neeson film. So <laughs> I would be totally down to actually go on like a double binge of them uh, together. That'd be fun. Uh, it's like a homework assignment for one oh, weekend yeah. and just see like similarities perhaps and motifs. And the other compare. one I got to say, was we're talking eighties classic, early eighties classics is Chuck Norris action movies as well. There's a lot of similarities between Chuck Norris movies and Bronson, except Chuck Norris usually has something like some sort of military tie to it. Either he's a special ops dude, uh, you know, going back into it, or special ops, dude, going back into the place where he used to fight and shit like that, but still usually the same connection. Some woman has been wronged and somehow and horribly maimed and he's going to kill everyone related to that maiming usually. Uh, but Chuck Norris somehow ties it to freedom, you know, America, Chuck Norris. Uh, there's a lot of one note actors, you know, Mr. T would be in the same boat. Oh, uh, excellent one. Yeah. Today though, there's a few that you would expect, right? We always bring them up uh, like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Uh, you mm. would think he'd be one, one note, but he's not. He's kind of very yeah, versatile. Yeah. Like, yeah. We talked about it a, lot, a few times since, but yeah, that's an interesting one. Like you said, where he started out sort of a cast type wrestler, kind of like Mr. T, a wrestler-esque or tough guy role, right? Uh, always being the tough guy. And he still gets to play a tough guy, but I think he's expanded that too. Like he's like the lovable tough guy and his persona just exceeds like it, it's beyond the screen too, which I think seeds into the, the into the, into the movies themselves. So he's, he's positioned himself so nicely in Hollywood. Like he's going to be around for a bit. Yeah, and I uh, I know you'll probably think of good counter arguments to this, but I think of Sylvester Stallone and John claude Van Damme as like kind of one note action stars in the sense that the modern versions of those actors, like Jason Statham, for example, has a little more contours. Like there's a little more shades of uh, I don't know emotional depth and humor that they touch into. Yeah. So I think, take more yeah. chances like artistically too kind of right at least the ones that are involved in with with uh within the height of their careers i agree with like jason Statham with like um with movies like cranked and stuff like that um even um snatched right another area where we first get him in there and some of these other guy Ritchie movies where he does build the persona where he's a tough guy but becomes action star which is a little different right yeah i, I agree with you like i think there is a interesting space between that like he's he stands out from that like ought action hero who's not of the 90s not of the 80s yeah, exactly. And the Furious one where he has a spinoff with The Rock. Um, he's very funny in that. He's kind of charming. You know, he's he's got a dynamic personality that you didn't see in those 90s action stars. Like, they're great. I'm not trying to knock hmm. them, but they're a little one-noted, right? But yeah, it, yeah I'm just, uh, that's like progress, I think. There is some progress people out there. <laughs> You're just not looking <laughs> in the right places. <laughs> The most grossing film on this list, if you look at the total grossing by far, is, of course, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's almost topping 200 million. So, wow, that is a ton at this point. And did you ever see this in theaters? Did it ever come back and circulate in theaters and give you a chance to actually see it in the big screen? I don't think I've ever actually gone back to seeing the Indiana Jones ones in theaters, actually. Always just rewatch them at home. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen any of those except Last Crusade might have been one i maybe have seen in theaters that might be the only one because so i think i was three or four when that came out my dad worked on it so we went as a family if i remember right nice super young but yeah i, I definitely saw the star wars when those came back out i think the late 90s they had them in theaters for like a good theatrical run again yeah. um but have not seen the indiana jones films and i did not touch as you've noted the, the harrison ford ones where he's like super old doing them still yeah. no not really into those um so 
we've tapped most of the things we know on this list. There's like some little tiny, I don't know, maybe they're not so tiny, but there's like a film called On Golden Pond, uh, which is a huge cast, Catherine Hepburn, Henry Fonda, Jane Fonda, in just a huge cast about a curmudgeon with an estranged relationship with his daughter. It's uh, the second highest grossing film of 1981, and it received 10 nominations, which is a ton. And so like, this is one of those films I've always heard of. I've seen the poster, don't know a thing about it. It's like, <laughs> I did not do my like Oscar homework on this one at all uh, uh, have you even heard of it as well or no you, you know okay as you went there i mean i know a lot of those actors and actresses you named off there but no i haven't heard of this one yeah i i've never ever heard of it it was also directed by mark rydell and you know he did a bunch of movies back in the day the rose the river the fox he has like all these academy award nominated films i've just never touched his entire collection and canon i don't i he's he's a, a blank spot <laughs> on my cinephile map so anything else you're finding on this list before we get into our movie of the uh, week no i think we can move on i haven't seen any of these other ones same same i really don't know anything else here um so before or to transition to personal best it is at 14 on this list and the lists are very strange at box office mojo and the data is very strange because it says it's in six week in theaters and it's averaging three thousand a week that's not much and it's gross this weekend was five hundred and fifty thousand um in 142 theaters that's all we know there's no data for the first five weeks it was in theaters for whatever reason so we have to assume it came out in late january technically it probably just played in a few select theaters in New York and LA at the time. It's a very small and intimate little film. I'm sure many of our listeners, if not almost 100% have never heard of this film. Mm. I'd never heard of it, um, but it does pop right up if you put like Olympic movies in like a Google search. Uh, So it also has a small cult following, some Mm. rave, rave reviews from the likes of Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert. And a very thorough and extensive Rolling Stone piece on Robert Town, the director, and the process of making this film. Uh, I just got to pause you there. Like, as he's laid out, it has everything you need, if you're listening to this, to get an A on your Cinema 101, Cinema 102, or Cinema 103 papers. There's enough. If like I said, if you Google it, it pops up right now. There's enough, as we'll talk about in this, in this to, to write a, a good critical essay. I think that's why it's starting to show up more now, I think, in, in these Google searches. That's just, that's just my hypothesis, though. No, I think that you're right on point there. And it's an intriguing one. It should just draw your attention for how odd it is to be a 1982 film um, that is really touching upon LGBTQ plus themes um, and undertones and overtones as well. It's very sensual, which we'll get into. Um, it's very much a film of the senses, which is a not oddly enough, an American style of filmmaking. We're a very material culture. So we like a big explosion through like car chases. We like loud, big. We don't like small textural sonic elements that are really isolated and, and dramatized. And the film definitely does that. And for some, perhaps they were expecting like a traditional sports movie that will be very off-putting and it could be difficult to get into this film, but, yeah. but there, yeah. sorry to cut you off, but like what you broke down there, like really breaks down like this genre and by genre, I mean the running movie that we just have been going through. It's, I mean, it's an American sport. I guess you want to say that it's not, I mean, it's not American sport, but like we're looking at it through this American lens of like the history of American running in a lot of these, like you said, now we're getting like the a little, like a little, 
foot in the water with the LGBTQ plus looking at like just women's running really is what this one's looking at. But like as a genre, like it's not sexy, like at all, really, even like it's not meant to be sexy. It's not about the bling. There's nothing to really like glorify materialistically, like you said. It's a very hard movie, even with sports. Like it's a hard movie to get into with the uh, the competitiveness isn't really even at the forefront of all these movies. The same way it is, as we said, with like football movies, hockey movies, like it's very hard to find the villain in these plots is what I'm saying, right? It doesn't work with the running movies. Um, And that speaks to what you said about like what we want, you know, the uh, mainstream American viewer kind of goes to the movie for is is to see that good triumph over evil thing. And a lot of sports movies, as we discussed throughout these podcasts, definitely carry on that tradition. Um, But we see with these running ones, other than maybe race, I think, where we have that good versus evil in the background, you know, with the the specter of World War II and everything in in that text. These other ones don't have that, right? That's the other aspect that's missing that is essential, I think, to like the American cinema is that, as we say, the hero's journey, that kind of retold story. Uh, So I just definitely want to point that out. Just carrying on with this genre, uh, how we kind of step away with running. It's very different than all these other sports we've covered, even though we've covered chess, right? Chess tied in very intricately with every, with every other sport, right? We use other sports to communicate chess. Um, we can't really do that to say with running. It makes the viewing experience kind of frustrating sometimes. I will say that um, if you don't really connect with the text right away, but yeah, that was a, for me, some of this uh, running is kind of a challenge, challenging uh, genre to view, I think is what I discovered as we break through these movies. Yeah, no, I think that's a good place to start too. Cause you're touching on the lack of a traditional Joseph Campbell hero's journey Mm -hmm. narrative arc that it really um i don't know i don't think it suffers from it but it really puts itself in an adverse approach or like it purposely and intentionally doesn't have that what it does have though is to me is a, a narrative that i expected to go somewhere that didn't so the basic plot line in this movie this is a good way to start it off too for our listeners who probably haven't seen this yet um is that we have like a young upstart sprinter played by Mariel Hemingway. Her name is Chris and she's a good runner, but she's not great. And she could tell she's like kind of envious of this track star named Tori played by Patrice Donnelly. And they meet, they drink and they form a relationship. And then we have this third element, which is the coach Scott Glenn who swoops in and he gets jealous of the relationship because we assume from context clues and so forth that he has a thing with Tori. So it's like, okay, we're in a traditional love triangle movie. I'm thinking like knife in the water, Plansky, uh, you know, lots of love triangle movies uh, that we could play with here. And also we have a sort of uh, the, the male figure in a position of power. So he's able to exploit them and toy with them and really abuse that power, which he sometimes absolutely does. And we'll get into that because I don't think the film incriminates him properly or sufficiently especially by our standards today. And I don't know if I can critique it properly either, because I think that might be a revisionist critique based on the mores of today. And they might not have been the same then, but it is kind of galling and appalling at times to watch this not be as, I don't know. I, I find it also redeeming in ways, just from an artistic standpoint, that it's more impartial. But it was a bit odd at how impartial the lens, the camera eye was on some of these scenes in which the coach was, I think, taking advantage of their naivete and their their youth and and just uh, not only those qualities but their roles as you know uh, amateur athletes who need their coach and his connections to build their career and he pits them together what is is basically what i got and i thought he was definitely conniving and machinating 
to ruin their relationship by creating the tension and turning them into foils between one another. But that is oddly not actualized as much as I would have hoped. And perhaps it's for the better that it wasn't, but I I guess I was expecting the familiar narrative beats of like, you know, they're going to turn against him and then like reignite their love for example, but uh, that, that doesn't really happen either. So it was a bit bizarre, the, the plot of this film. Yeah, no, I, I was with you in terms of like the traditional beats definitely strays from that. But like it, like you, you point out, there's, there's a lot of just awkward moments in this movie that kind of just linger. And they don't really like, as you say, they let they let a lot of the characters off too. Even um, our character, we'll talk about this a little later, uh, Tori, as you say, she can be considered kind of a, an antagonist at times. So I think our central character, we want to break it down as our protagonist is Chris, right? She's one who we have uh, briefly in the beginning of the story. We see her father's kind of tough on her. She comes from a you know middle-class family. Like, looks like they're doing just fine. And we get the sense, like, again, like she's the one who's held back, right? That's where we get our traditional story. Like, it's the story of someone who has more potential. They're going to engage that potential by being pushed, which is what our coach is doing, too. Which is, like, I agree. That's one thing I liked about this in terms of the uh, portrayal of the coach, who's played by Scott Glenn. Just to give context, um... As I always have to point out my comic book connections here, Scott Glenn is stick from Daredevil. And so again, he's playing this role where he's just being a, a mean coach, but to better someone, right? So anyone who knows his Daredevil story is Sticks is blind ninja dude who just was really tough on Matt and what we called a abused Matt until he became Daredevil. Um, but you know, Daredevil likes Stick because he he was hard on him. Um, right. It's that it's that type of relationship, which is which is a, which I think is a very interesting dynamic, right? It's a very like classic as a Joseph Campbell dynamic, I would say. Um, every science fiction story has that, right? Uh, there, those who watch Doom has that, that story kind of has that as well, right? So we definitely get that here. And I think Scott Glenn, I just want to highlight him. He's the highlight of this in terms of um the performances, the acting, the thespiness of this. He's the delivery here. Uh, he's the one who delivers and really ties it together with in terms of like the pathos and ethos, even just his ethos of being like a coach who's both credible and like kind of like uh, an everyday dude in the sense he's like, he likes to drink and smoke just like the other other runners, but he's also can be like a hard ass, just like Arlie Emery at times. He has this like switch, which I find interesting and intriguing. Like he has this weird kind of like wild card thing going on, uh, which is why you see the runners are kind of afraid of him as well, which is something you kind of want. I I, I was like, we talked about this coach, you kind of want from a coach, you particularly coach in the eighties, wasn't uh, your, your friend, right? That's, that'd be, that'd be, you know, that's, that's, that'd be innovative then. So I, I do like the way he, we get that set up with him in terms of, like you said, how he's able to manipulate them, but also like it does open up enough, que- it makes it questionable enough where you're like, is he manipulating them for the sake of ending the relationship? Just give, again, give context, Chris and Tony, yeah, and Tori, excuse me, are going to eventually kind of fall, they're going to fall in love, have a relationship, they're going to break up, but they're going to be on the same training on the same squad to basically make the same Olympic trial team, just to summarize that. And he basically points this out several times to her. Uh, Coach Terry points this out that, you know, despite that you are in love with her, uh, she can basically fuck you over if she wants because you love her more than she loves you. It's kind of the subtext. Of this. And this is all subtext, too. I want to be clear. A lot of this movie is just about the subtext uh, because the dialogue isn't the strongest. And as I no doubt, the other than Terry, the performances aren't very strong, but I got to give credit to like the sound and the camera work kind of picks up enough where you get a sense of enough of the implications and the significance of the implications, I would say. So you're not really guessing in terms of like, you know, the romantic relationship and all that. It's really just out in the open for the most part. And then the subtext around it's with the community and kind of like, again, the, the eyes of the community on them. And even those are very um, progressive in, in this movie. Um, so yeah, that'd be my quick analysis of this beginning part of it. 
Yeah, I like that you brought up the the dialogues. A little uh, uncanny, idiosyncratic. I, I I wrote that it was like very mumblecore esque. <laughs> it reminded me of like a mumblecore film. That's um, a great way of saying that. Yeah, I could. No, no, no. Uh, because it's just a lot of low key casual conversations, and I also appreciated and think it's an interesting contrast, maybe from my take on the acting, which I actually, I like Scott Glenn a lot as well. Um, but he was the more like vigorous actor in a film. He was kind of like had moments of, of real cinematic quality, it, you know, just even when he's drinking in the bleachers and, and, oh, and pestering his, his runners as they're, as they're uh, you know, practicing and doing laps. Mm. Uh, there, there's something that's kind of iconic and archetypal about that. There's very little that's iconic or archetypal about our two main leads, the, 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 the two female characters in this film, and their conversations, their colloquial pacing uh, is uh, just very muted and underto- underscored uh, by, by odd uh, sonic cues that are off screen or just uh, on screen, diegetic cues that are uh, peripheral, but almost louder than their voices. <laughs> and that's a very strange decision to make. And I think it's part of the the motivation of this film is to create something that's very naturalistic and a little more dilated. I think when I think of this film the most, it's early on, they have really their first night together. They go home a little drunk and they're watching, I think, TV for a long time next to each other. And that scene is so long and so protracted, right? And drawn out. And they do some really quirky stuff. Like I think she asked to pull her finger and then she farts. It's kind of jokey. Uh, it's like showing their intimacy on, on a weird level and yeah. also kind of tapping into their the bodily carnal aspects of this film. And I found it very audacious in the sense that it was anti-cinema in that degree. It was like, yeah. this is not cinematic yet. I'm, I'm lingering. I'm, I'm not editing this. I'm not cutting this. And so I found that that kind of intriguing. Yeah, it stands out because I had the I didn't like the way the movie starts, to be honest. It's like you just said, by the time we get to the crescendo of the beginning of the first act, essentially not the first act, but the first like 10, 15 minutes of the movie, it's to get to the arm wrestling scene because that's shot nicely. And that, like I said, just symbolizes everything, puts everything like nice little bow on everything that everyone can see. And I don't want like I know it sounds sarcastic. I don't want to knock that. It's done pretty well. Uh, but to get there is it's a journey that. Like you said, you can't remember anything from the journey because nothing stuck out. I mean, there's a dance we get to see. She dances that we, again. It's, it's introducing the the subtext that they're interested in each other. Um, they're lesbians who aren't out. It, it gives you this enough subtext for that. They have the, the the awkward dinner interaction, right? Like they meet and kind of like touch and whatnot after the Olympic trials, right? Where we see their competitors, but there's you know they they catch each other's eye pretty much. Um, and all that, like you said, leads up to this really long conversation that you just described. But it's all to get to that arm wrestling competition that really sets up the dynamic of their relationship. It's a long time to get there. And that's the first quote unquote action other than the slow motion running we got in the beginning, which again, isn't like, as we said, it's very hard with the running movies to really get you into like the zone of competition, like the significance of that competition. Cause it's really just showing you, it's really initiating the uninitiated viewer with a lot of these running movies, which is you have to do, I think, uh, cause just because it's, it's running. It's not football. It's not, you know, you have to teach them how to watch this, I think, which is, I think that's one thing we take away from all four of these movies we've seen that other than uh, Tokyo Olympia, you have to teach them how to watch what you want them to see in these running movies. But then when we get to the arm wrestling scene, right, where we get the sense of competition, that's the one line we can take away. The one line that stands out from the first 15 minutes is Tori tells Chris, you lack killer instinct. 
right? And that's something her dad tells her in that idea. That's the idea that she's competitive, but she's not competitive enough to always do what it takes to win. And that's the only thing you can take away from that. And it is important because that is the just the overarching theme of Chris's journey is, does she develop the killer instinct? I think by the end of the movie, the answer is no. In my opinion, the answer is no. But yeah, that's what it's really setting up. And the, and the arm wrestling is a cool scene. I gotta say, I like the close-ups of, again, the arms, the eyes, the sweat. Uh, I think that one has lack of music, if I remember right. So it's really a pretty tense scene, uh, if I'm uh, uh, recollecting it correctly. But again, it's, it's, it's another one that's doing a good job of setting up the close-ups that are going to be used later to, again, like I say, really put the bow on each of these scenes. I think it's it's if it wasn't for the cinematography being so strong and just pretty well executed in this one, and we'll talk about it a little more. It really draws from like Tokyo, uh, Tokyo Olympiad. Uh, it referenced in one of our in the Rolling Stone article that we'll kind of reference in this uh, in this podcast. Uh, the director did reference that the crew had looked at Olympiad, but I really got a sense of Tokyo Olympiad for even on those on those um, arm wrestling scene. Right, the idea of just the close up of seeing the runner, not seeing the entire race around them. There's a, again, there's an emphasis on the individual in this, and I think it's really setting it up pretty well, particularly those two individuals. So by the time we get to that last race, when it's a group that's competing, it actually builds up nicely with that but again like you said it takes a bit to get there though which i think is the weak point of this it's it's your intro you kind of want the strong intro i love that you fixate on that arm wrestling scene because that is a big big scene thematically and as you spelled it out i realized that's kind of the thesis of the film and i didn't recognize that until just now and i think that that phrase you took killer instinct uh, in that sense it's weird. I think I got a little detracted fixating on the love triangle possibilities. And I really think that's the purpose. I think he's more interested in the coming of age story of Chris. I think it's specifically, as you said, she's the protagonist and it's about whether she will develop a killer instinct or not. What uh, Scott Glenn's character, the coach's character brings to the table is that he's trying to bring that killer instinct out of her. And even Tori is in a way, she's even trying to get her to compete at a higher level. And it's, it's almost like uh, playing with gender tropes, too, and norms, where she's a little bit, I, mean, I don't know, they're all blended in amorphous and weird, but like it's kind of like masculine-feminine. And the feminine uh, has too much empathy for the other or compassion to like get mm-hmm. the killer instinct. Um, and everyone's trying to train her. You have to get the killer instinct to become a true like Olympian, per se. Mm-hmm. And will she actually transcend her more gentle, kindly nature and I know these are a lot of stereotypes and stuff, but I'm saying like, this is the framework, I think yeah. a little bit of the, of this story um, that they're going on. And uh, as you said, uh, you know, spoilers, we don't really care about. Uh, she doesn't, she doesn't, she, she, she never really overcomes her softness. And I, I, the film doesn't judge her for it, which is, no. which is refreshing and redemptive, but it's not even super bittersweet. It's just like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, but the, what I like about the one, like I said, the lens highlights it though. Like you said, it's, there, every race, I've, if I remember right, going back, even the arm wrestling, like basically Tori wins by getting her to say, we're going to call it a draw and then she beats her, right? Tori will do whatever it takes to win. She's just Tom Brady. She'll deflate those balls. Watch the defense coach, right? She'll do whatever it takes to win. Other on the other guy, we see that one of the better scenes and one I really like is uh, one thing is just to kind of digress here. This movie portrays uh, the Central Coast very nicely. It's an area I lived in for uh, like five, five, six years. Loved it there. And like the again scene, Morro Bay in the background, a lot of Montana de Oro, a lot of the downtown area in the 80s was really cool. Catch captures it very nicely, that kind of lifestyle of just, I mean, like seeing them run the dunes just threw me back. Just like so the area I used to like go hike and used to love to camp up there. 
And uh, seeing them run up there, man, I used to do that with a 30 pack and a sleeping bag. And so like, I was like, I was loving that scene. Like I was loving it, uh, but especially because like the coach he used to go up there. He's, he'd watch the riders and shit. We'd go up there on a hike with our fucking case of beer and go beach. And you'd see like this, you know, all the athletes are fucking running that dune hill up that, up that shit and killing themselves. And, you know, we'd sit there and drink beers and cheer them on and shit. But uh, yeah, yeah. All that whole throwback to that cool like lifestyle, the college lifestyle that is just abundant in that area was captured pretty well again, just with the camera. But like, going back to that scene with the dunes, though, even when they're running up the dunes, like you see that Chris is ahead. She's ahead, but she lets Tori catch up to her. Right. There's always the scenes where she doesn't always she never lets her really when she can, when she doesn't do it. Right. And even when we get to the ending here, the same thing basically happens. But I like like the way it's just shown, though. It's really with the camera of the close up where you're supposed to judge it yourself. They don't even acknowledge that they're always competing, even though they have like this competitive edge. Like they don't say who won even these little practices, even though they're always running against each other and whatnot. They think they're trained together. They say they're trained together. But like the coach keeps pointing out, like she's trained to beat you. Um, and she'll do whatever it takes to beat you. But yeah, I like the way the, the lens really just like highlights it for the audience. And then you can kind of judge for yourself because there's a lot left up in the air with this. There's a lot of just subtext that uh, you really just got to put together yourself with this movie. I thought of you a lot watching this because it's all in in slow, <laughs> basically. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, that that's Morro Bay Rock, right? And it, it definitely was. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's where we went hiking that one time, actually. It's up over there, where the first scene where she was uh, running up. I remember that. Yes, I remember that as well. It definitely all looked familiar to me, but I spent nowhere near as much time as you did. So I just visited you a few times, and that's pretty much it. Uh, But I I like that we're kind of navigating towards the technical aspects of this film a lot, because this is a very technically rich film, maybe emotionally dry film, believe it or not. Mm. But the, the technical aspects, I think, is where the meat of the discussion will be. And I, I think there is a lot there, whether it, it succeeds as a whole, whether it holds together like the architecture of the film, I don't know. Um, that'll be at the very end when we kind of throw our, our cumulative opinions on this. But in individual isolated scenes, they're doing some interesting stuff. And uh, you brought up that he, uh, Town, the director and writer, is working, uh, playing with the editing styles and image styles and pacing and slow motion techniques of Reifenstahl's Olympiad. Uh, he also references uh, Carol Ballard's The Black Stallion. An interesting thing about both those films is they're both directed by women, which isn't very common in Hollywood at all, especially in only 1982. So he's definitely trying to work within like the, the very, very slim, narrow feminine tradition here. And I think he does. Um, and one of the most interesting scenes, only after reading meta context about it, is that shot put uh, competition. And they talk about how he uses slow motion. And I'm going to read his quote because it's really shows a level of intentionality behind every shot in this film that can be deceiving or duplicitous to the viewer who thinks it's so casual that uh, you, you might almost like kind of doze off or drift away or look at your text messages, right? Because it just like feels like a really underwhelming film, actually. It just, that's just the blunt opinion of mine, uh, but <laughs> there's a lot going in here. So uh, Talon says the cliched way of doing a shot put event is to show the preparation in normal speed and then go into slow motion as the athlete begins to release the shot. So that's really interesting right there because in to- Tokyo Olympiad, we saw that, right? He definitely not only did that, he did like a metonymic type of isolation or microscopic honing in on the shot putts like chin and shoulder. So that was a really roundabout way of saying like the camera just zoomed in so much that you didn't even really get a holistic understanding of the competition. You just got individual anatomical parts working 
in weird sequences, right? And it just becomes almost like a, a meditation on the human body in action, right? Um, that I'm talking about Tokyo Olympiad. Here, it's a little bit more of a wide lens. So you're getting the actual action, but unlike the slow motion coming at the release, right? He saw it in reverse. And he, he said uh, he used slow motion here as a metaphor for the every woman and their emotional extreme. So at the start, the image of the woman caressing the shot put is almost motherly. They're tender. It's, he puts it in slow motion first as they like spin in their circles to throw it. And then when they finally release it, the shot goes out ferociously as if they're tearing pieces out of themselves. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's a crazy, crazy level of added thought and reflexivity going on here in very literary weight going on in all of these scenes that is intriguing if you if you want to dig into something that does have, you know, like you said earlier, subtext. That's, that's the word of the day for this film. We throw it out around a lot, but this film is very, very rich in subtext. Whether it's effective, that's another question, but it does have a lot of subtext. And you brought a lot up even before we came on, which we should get into. There's the subtext of like the dialogue trying to like play with sort of colloquial J.D. Salinger, like everyday speech and not really working. Um, there's the subtext of just different bodily shots over and over of like women jumping in the vault and all sorts of things like that. So in terms of like subtext and technicalities, what did you focus on in th that department? Like I said, I'll start with one I like, because I'll go back to um, to Coach Terry. Like we said, I think he's the one of the highlights of like the idea, like I said, trying to capture a colloquialism of a, of a coach trying to coach women, of a male trying to coach women, right? I think that's one of the goals and how that would come across. And like, I'm gonna go back to that scene where he's in the uh, Cal Poly uh, track, track and field stadium, sitting there on the bench while all again, like he always has a case of beer next to him while he's getting drunk while everyone's running. Um, it's one where Chris is running against another male runner and he's, he starts yelling again, like just yelling at the man that she's going to catch you. You, you, you know, you blew your, you blew your load. You blew it too early, dude. You're done, right? You're done. You're done. Then she catches him. Right. So, and again, I want to quote him. He says, you just let a pussy beat you. You dumb asshole. Right. It's such a, something you hear at a Philadelphia Flyers game, right? Something you hear coming from, coming out from that stand. Right. And again, the intensity is delivered and it's meant to be endearing towards Chris. Right. But again, it's, uh, again, it's like misogynistic. It could be taken as right. That's one of those elements. I think that delivered pretty well. And actually, I, in my opinion, aged well, particularly with a character and what we're trying to go with this character, like where he's, where he fits in particularly in the story as, uh, someone she's about to trust. Uh, when this line's delivered against after he's kind of taken her into the wing after Chris and Tori break up, okay, so she comes and lives with him. Right. He still has this weird coach relationship where he's coaching her with the sporting and coaching her through her relationship what she should be doing with that and that's still tied to the sport always right he always has this interesting connection where he whether he, what he does draw the line by which is um it sounds sexist but like i mean a lot of males are told you know not to go out and party hard the night before a game for a reason right that, again it's that double standard that detachment of still coaches managing your sex life really um that still exists but it's it, it, it sounds it's so cringy uh when you watch it coming from a guy you know in this weird position of authority and still dictating her life and still like wanting her to stand up for herself, but can't stand up to him and the, that whole duplicity. That's, that's fascinating. That, that's actually an interesting part of the story. How it plays is kind of awkward and weird. Cause again, who, who plays Chris? She's not the strongest actress, Marielle Hemingway. Unfortunately, she really does not deliver on the crying. It's uh, on the emotional connection to Tori. It's a weak link. I got to say, it's one of those ones uh, we haven't seen in a while. Where we've had just bad acting that really holds back the movie. But it does. It's robotic. She really got cast for, for the athletic ability, um, what she can do physically. It comes out well, like as we said, with the, the ability to run and as um, 
carry on what you said earlier with the, one of the reasons he likes to use slow motion. He says he also sometimes uses slow motion in films simply to capture the intense beauty of the athlete's faces. The slow motion turns the human face into a still pond and the emotion ripples through it. Um, there's something in the simplicity of the athlete's eyes that makes you feel that like they're in touch with more basic truths. And I think that stands true, right? And it happens when they're not talking. As I keep, I'm going to keep going back to this. A lot of the great points of this, and I'll, I will say it's like, when you want to go back to watch this movie, this is a good example. Like I said, if you, this would be a, a low hanging or not low hanging fruit. If you wanted to write a, a good breakdown, a, a cinematographer who did a good job in an underrated movie, right? Um, if you're kind of looking for that angle for your class essay or whatever, right? It pays off because it's like we said, that intricate detail, attention to detail that the director has, at least in the script and in the intention of shooting it, right? It does work uh, at certain parts. And we'll talk about the slow motion, I'm sure, a lot when we get to that final race. Um, but like I said, the whole reason the arm wrestling works is because of the slow motion, the close up on the stillness of the faces and really the sound. I didn't talk about the huffing and puffing. It's both sexual, right? It's both athletic and it works with the arm wrestling because we have this great tension of are they are they gay or not here, right? Because that's still not necessarily answer, but we know uh, at that point. Um, but again, with the huffing and puffing has this great, again, subtext of whether of, of them just being uh, attracted to each other sexually, but also the competition, right? And that also phys physicality of that, the sweat dripping down and how that ties in again to uh, sex and all that. It's strong and it's, it's delivered well, like I said, in those scenes when they're not talking, it's all just the physicality because these actresses were cast and we'll talk about the casting here in a little bit great for the, the athletic display of what they could do. Um, there's no really complaints on, on my end of that in terms of like the athletic display that we see here and i think that scene with the arm wrestling and some of these other ones with so motion and the the tie to sensualism and sexuality that kind of like way you're kind of like balancing doing this balancing act it's done pretty well with the camera and the sound yeah i think that the the, the film is trying to create a marriage between the athletic and the erotic and to do it in a way that oddly enough this might sound so weird, but objectifies both. Um, not in the sense like of objectifying a woman, but that creates like an objective language. I could see someone saying the opposite too, that he wants to create a very subjective language. And that's one of the weirdest uh, dichotomies going on here and contradictions that I couldn't quite reconcile because at once this film felt very um, naturalistic and a little gratuitous as well. And the gaze was oscillating between the two and you're left wondering, is, is this like the perviest movie I've ever seen? Or is this someone that's trying to de-romanticize? I don't even know that's a word, but to sort of humanize and normalize the body in a way. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's all this nudity in it. That's why there's all this sensuality in it. That's why there's all this rawness. And a lot of it's very awkward. Like there's many scenes in the sauna with the whole track team nude. And there's plenty of other nude scenes. There's a scene with Chris and her uh, boyfriend who she meets swimming uh, late in the film where she helps him pee because she wants to know what it feels like to hold it. Right. I mean, that's a very intimate raw moment. And so I, I think that one really sticks out that tell that tells you like, this is someone that's going after the unspoken intimacies that go on in everyday life that, that are kind of taboo, yeah. um, you know, and, and trying to not really to push your buttons. I don't try to, I don't think it's trying to provoke you. I think it's going after something artistic here. I really do admire it. <laughs> I don't know if it it like is resoundingly successful. Yeah, yeah. I like what we break down because uh, I just wanted to compare it to another movie we talked about, Youngblood, uh, the locker room scene in Youngblood. It reminds me of that, but like like you said, the way it's shot and the function of it are both like they're so didactic, and you know they're being didactic. Right. You know, there's something going on here. And like Youngblood is both raunchy male humor with the locker room and the asses and like the like jock play and all that shit. And then him getting stuck outside with the girl being naked. Right. It's like 
it's like your junior high worst nightmare. I'm stuck naked outside and the girl I like, and she sees me and I'm not <laughs> my best. Right. It's stuff like that. That plays this weird, like double lens, right? Where like we talked about, there's like power in, in the female gaze in that one as well. And this one, like you said, oscillates between both of them, but it feels like the early on movies, some of these early on established shots of the scenes in the shower come a lot after practice and running and stuff like that. So it ties in with the idea of just athletes and athletes naked in the shower. So, but then you're right. There's a lot of stuff going to the sauna from conversations and stuff that doesn't really tie to, you know, them competing against each other. Right. Um, there's that weird scene where like Tori just snaps at a girl in the shower for whatever reason for her saying something, right. We get some funny jokes in the shower too and stuff like that. And those little shower scenes, but that's one, like, I, like kind of like you said, where you don't really know where you fit in with the purpose of it. And then there are others, like you said, where it's clearly just trying to be didactic and just like you said, just varying the gaze really. Yeah. And the shower scene, right? He talks about like how he, he was focused. He says more on a single sound of a single drop than anything else in the scene, which is so weird, but he goes on this long tangent. I'm talking about town again. Sorry, I gotta say, it's like saying like, he's like, no, man, I was, I was, I was bird watching. <laughs> what the fuck? Are you serious? Like he's got, he's got all the girls in the showers. No, I was listening to the sound. Like, like I was a plumber. I was, I was doing some plumbing work. <laughs> <laughs> it does. To me, it does a little too. It feels very disingenuous and dubious <laughs> at times. And like early on, he said like this film was a fantasy for him too. And you're like, wait, so which one is it? Is it like your male fantasy or are you like this high no. Oh shit, he's a coach, dude. We just put it together. He is fucking coach Terry. It's both fantasy and power. It's all that. That's that we put it together. And and uh a groomer, because I think Terry's a groomer. That's yes. what it's <laughs> if he's culpable of anything, that is completely the term that for him. 100 percent He grooms true. everyone in this movie. But you know, there are scenes that feel like he's he's trying to get after the realism, even the party scene with there's like a chubby guy playing guitar. I, I don't know why. The reason why I brought that up is because like there's a point when Tori kind of plays with his belly, which is another moment of just like fleshliness. Mm-hmm. There's slow motion shots, like I brought up earlier, of them jumping, high jumping, and there's literally just showing the like undulations of like thighs and calves moving. It's mm-hmm. it's it's just all about the body, which makes sense in so far as they're all about technicalities too, as we've said, right? The technical elements of filmmaking because. That is what's going to give you different mm, ratios, different densities, different thicknesses, different visceralness. I am still pretty impressed like with some of the things they were trying to do. Like you brought up the cinematographer earlier and that was a great point. Like it's one of those films where like a mediocre film with the cinematography is doing some interesting things, right? Mm. And they're playing like uh, with long lenses, um, isolating figures in a big landscape, uh, mm. which I think they do right before the scene where the the coach comes in kind of first really woos Chris on that hillside. And then there's also this really obsession of the cinematographer with a wide lens to show individuals in a broad context. Mm. And I'm going to read his quote. He says, I came out of a sensibility bred on 30s B movies, the kind with hard, flat images of people working. I find great poignance in their ordinary reality. And uh, he goes on to tell town that he says, you're an educated mountain. He's talking to the director. How can you not see that long lenses are elitist, romantic, and possibly immoral and corrupt? Uh, So this is a passionate, devoted athlete here working behind the camera, trying to get at a lyricism poignancy of ordinariness. And I think that really works. I mean, this is a master class in that because there's so many scenes that like, it's such a flat image. It's such a, Deglamorized image. 
that you're like, this is the antithesis of beauty. Like this is purposely ugly. Like it's flat, it's lifeless, it's dull. The, the lighting's harsh. And what's interesting is he's going after that. Mm-hmm. He wants the realism of that. And I do find that interesting. It's like a, a really gritty type of ne- neorealism yeah. at play here that you would never imagine. Uh, that's a good point. Like you said, uh, just even re- recalling how real, just using the setting of Morro Bay to its advantage and really capturing that beauty. Like I said, it, it serves well, even seeing the 80s and real, like I lived there in like, 2008 to whatever right like seeing right away that it's california avenue and those those familiar indicators and how you, how they're captured i mean yeah definitely yep. that realism is is one of the stronger points of this of as we said of the cinematography but again uh, in terms of like weaknesses of this aside from acting what would you say is some of the other kind of lackluster parts of this film well to keep going like on this refrain and it's one of the weaknesses it's like it's really obsessed with trying to like master the interplay of sound and image right like he when you like hear about this film in the uh you know the added dialogue that were that we read on rolling stone for example but it, just as you watch it, it is conspicuous that they're doing this, right? They're they're like kind of cutting all the sound out, eliminating the noise, making it really bereft of sound, and then maximizing like a, a drop of water or or the wind or something very very specific. And I don't ever think it works. I never get what it's trying to say. I don't get the I get the textuality is there, but it's not moving me emotionally. Um, it's not even really moving me intellectually. It's like someone who has this world construction, this vision in their head that is so esoteric and abstruse mm-hmm. and privatized that I respect it because they're investing all this into it, but it's not coming across. And so that's like, it's almost a tragedy of art. It's like mm-hmm. the, the tragedy of putting so much into something that has so many layers that are just not conveyed to yeah. your audience. Uh, and that that's, that's what I see. That's the biggest film. Yeah. I actually want to carry on with that. Cause I, I was going to take that to the, to the textual mm-hmm. aspect of it. One of my biggest issues, it didn't give us, a, like I said, a clear trajectory of the significance of the competition. A lot of these running moves you watch, one of the things they do well is explain why the last race matters, right? Whether it's for the Olympics, uh, where it's for pride, right? Whatever it is, whether it's qualifying, right? This one, a lot of the details of what they're running for, the idea that's going to be, the idea that's the 1980 Olympics too, is a big thing that kind of just doesn't get mentioned until like the last race, right? The idea that these are trials for kind of like nothing because the US is going to boycott the Olympics, right? That doesn't really become anything until the end. It's all like a footnote. And that really bugged me. It's kind of, as a viewer, it's hard to follow the, why do you care about the competition? Why do I care about the characters winning? Which character do I want to choose and why? I never got to make that choice because I really didn't care um, if I was going to pick Team Chris or Team Tori, right? That's not, that's not a draw for this movie. It's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's a flaw with the sports movie because of, like we said, we get it through the coach that the coach is trying to insinuate that Tori is trying to sabotage your running career particularly we get that scene where she gives her advice about her form before the high jump and she says she should jump further out she like blows her knee and even that is still pretty ambiguous who who are we supposed to blame in that right because she still doesn't really want to blame her i think the audience is supposed to blame her then we also have the coach kind of complicating that because he might be convoluting her or you know corrupting her thought process as well but again that's all the drama is all in that moment and it's not it's not really explored it's not really like 
pointing me in the right direction. Like it's not, again, it's not leading up to that last act enough. And I think we really talk about with these sports movies, you got to really drive to the last act. The, one of the best things about the Queen's Gambit is it uses the last act as a framing device thinly and gets you to that final chess match in like 10 episodes where you're ready to like, you know, just rock it, right? It has that aurora of the championship and whatnot. And there's no set, like the, the idea of searching for glory and what type of glory you're searching for, what that glory represents, it, it lacks in this one. With Prefontaine, we know what his glory is. It's two things. It's his pride and, you know, the actual glory of just being, of you know, making that Olympic team and whatnot. Yeah, no, it gives you high stakes. I think that's the other thing that just lacks. The stakes aren't clear for the actual competition. And when they're kind of sprinkled in, that's when it gets you thinking like, oh, okay, this is a, has more to do with like the 1980 Olympics. This is a big, there's a kind of ironic aspect that all oh, this is kind of for naught in a way, right? But that's not like a big plot point. It's not really ever seep into the characters' uh, emotions or actions or even the dialogue, which I just feel, again, it's kind of a missed opportunity of uh, building that landscape around uh, that setting and that particular time period. It's one of those things like with the running movies, like we said, you really got to find your way to get to that to that hook really is what it is. You got to find that hook early and find a way to get back to it. Seems to be the, the game they play with the successful one. And I don't think this movie really did that with the ending. It's interesting you brought up Prefontaine too, because we didn't bring this up yet, but Without Limits is a Robert Town film. So there is a lot to be said about the juxtapositions of these two. Um, they look similar to me. They also have a similar feel. But what I was thinking of what you're saying too, is Without Limits is so much about the competition, right? And about yeah. the sport and about the Olympics and about the context of the Olympic Games and what happens when there's the hostage situation and, and how to persevere through, you know, defy odds. So it's very much that type of a sport movie. Whereas this one, as you said, it's a, it's almost an afterthought. Um, the title of the film personal best is because Olympics were canceled and they only were competing for their personal best scores. I read that uh, later. I didn't even catch that in the yeah. film. Um, it was like me with race. See, it happens. It happens. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so th that's just showing how marginal that element is to this. And this is a film that's the feminine antithesis to without limits as the masculine, which is about like the sport, the competition, the overcoming. This is about the relationship elements, right? That's sure that the sort of like temp for reconciliation and the everydayness and the spontaneity of life, the details, the nuance, the minutia, right? It's really concerned with the minutia, with the poetry of little things. My problem, I, I love that it's about that and I'm all for it. And I, 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 it sounds great as I'm talking about it, but the minutia is just not that poetic. It's just not that beautiful. It just doesn't ever capture me. It doesn't have enough pull. The acting's as you said, amateurish at best, that is pretty bad. And some of it's probably just because it was the 80s. Um, and so trying to do like a naturalistic mumblecore type thing in the 80s might have affected people in a way that doesn't work any longer. And the symbolism, right, is loaded. And it's just too obvious that you don't even think about it. For example, supposedly they end the relationship of Tori and Chris with the sound of a car sluggishly starting is what we learn um, from the article, right? We, we talked about this a little bit before, which is how they signal the beginning of the relationship, which is an interesting sort of chiasmus going on there. It's a full mm. circle, right? Who picks this up? I don't know. Like what film geek are, is it, are they expecting to read that much into these little cues i have no idea right this is almost like the the um, epitome of like 
an overzealous literary uh, mind, right? Creating all this meaning that's just not resonating with people. Yeah, it's because those details, those little minutiae, those details of minutia work in a thing like Tarantino or like a Marvel movie that's a big scale because there's so much going on in front of it that's driving you. The small details become significant because you missed them or you, because you did catch them and your, your guess was right. It's more fun. Because like I caught the first one where the car didn't work, right? And it's two lesbians getting in a car, like, I get the symbol, but like I said, that's the only thing going on in the scene though. And because that you said like it got there, like it's, it's not an effective symbol. It's too obvious. It's too, I didn't catch the last one because there's more going on, right? There's more going on by the time we get to the second one because we have more characters into it, right? It's one of those ones, like I said, like the beginning is so bare that things that seem significant are significant just because it's the only fucking thing going on, unfortunately. And that's kind of, I would have to say, it's kind of bad writing, right? Especially in a short story, which is what a movie really is. Like a movie like this would be like, I consider have a short story, right? The idea, you know, you put, you put the gun in the, the gun on the mantle, you mentioned it, it must go off, right? And it adhered to that to that rule too closely without all the other stuff you have to do around it. I, I think that's one of the, like, as we discussed, one of the problems with such a bare bone intro is there's a lot to pick apart symbolically or a little too didactically. And if you don't deliver on that, it looks like a bad symbol or it looks like bad use of artists or of a bad use of the artist. Right. And that's one of the things I think that happens here. Some things get delivered on, um, but some just kind of fall short and just like, they don't really amount to anything. Yeah. And to go on with this, sound of the car sluggishly starting at the end of the relationship, right? It segues into like her going to the swimming pool where she meets her new lover. And it the silence in this scene is supposedly like a hole in the sound and like a new birth. And the problem with all these things, right, is there's not enough contrast. I love that you brought up like a Marvel movie, right? Where you have such a macro level story uh, telling uh, approach that when you focus on the micro for a second, suddenly it is accentuated so we can latch on and have the signifier necessary to know that it's meaningful. (laughs) But when we're just saturated in minutia, uh, how do we know what's significant and what's not? Like the semiotics aren't there for us to discern. No, there's not a key to the legend. Like there's no map for us as a viewer to really catch all these things because there's no contrast. This film lacks the contrast that's necessary. So whereas like a bigger stakes film really succeeds by adding just a few moments of minutia, right? Subtle details. This smaller stakes film lacked the ability to make those really big moments for the contrast. That's where it should have had its symbolism, actually. Even though that feels cliche and generic, that would work with this because yeah. so much of it is just everydayness. It feels like very improvised at times, you know, just the living, breathing people just going about their day. I get that they're after that, but then he needs the, the spectacle, the big moments, I think, to infuse the contrast necessary for the story to work and for these symbols to work and for us to, to feel some heft and weight of the, of what's going on. And to, to realize just as a viewer that like, Oh, he's trying to tell us this, the cues though, just, there's too many of them. They're too sprinkled within and it, they just become diluted and just lost. I just didn't pick up on any of this stuff. So it's one of those weird things where I appreciate the meaningfulness, the purposefulness of everything done in this film. I think that Talon is an interesting artist. I think that Without Limits was a very detailed film as well that that had a lot going on. I think this is as well, but yeah, it's just, I, I got kind of lost watching this because I did not capture as a viewer, any of the things that I learned after were going on. So that's yeah. why I'm talking so much about the, the stuff that I learned after, because it really is interesting because it adds elements to this. And, and uh, otherwise I would probably just be 
from start to finish critiquing the movie because I didn't feel almost anything. I felt very cold watching this movie and at times a, a bit intrigued and quizzical and uh, impressed with the, the audacity of what was going on, but, but not touched in any way. Um, so yeah, that kind of, I think is my like main duality of my opinion of this thing. So if, if you have anything else uh, left, do, do we not touch upon everything uh, in the film itself or should we move on to like our thoughts and reviews? Where are you with this? One last thing, I guess, because I want to carry on with the last thing you said about the last race. Cause I, I agree it, it ties into without limits. The one of the things Without Limits did really well, like I said, was explaining the significance of running and how running works. And a lot of this movie, like we said, it shows the sport. Um, it shows the shot putting. It shows the hurdle. It doesn't explain the running part. So you understand the significance of why she's letting how she's letting her her uh, former lover take the race. Right. Essentially let her get into the top three. Um, it does a bad job of explaining how that works. Basically, like it's, it's kind of like I said with um, some of the other running movies, it makes it look like you can just run as fast as you want whenever you want. If you're always in the front, you're destined to lose, right? It has this weird dynamic where if I didn't watch the other running movies, I would have really understood the way she was like letting her win and how like the significance of her running the fastest and like what that meant, right? It was, it was one of those ones where like I get the sacrifice would have rang on me at all had I not watched these other movies preceding this one. And that stuck out to me like right away. Like I said, it's, it's the last thing. It's the whole sacrifice moment of the hero and not. And again, it, I get the, the significance of it. And just the delivery just was just flat. And, and even like the way she falls and like, we don't get enough of like, that's one area where you really should have excelled on the, uh, on the body is like, you know, uh, of her being just dead afterwards of what she had sacrificed. I felt that was so just like punctuated almost. And I was just like, oh man, that was, that was the spot for like the slow-mo or, or, you know, uh, something kind of to show that. But yeah, that's, that's kind of like the last thing I have to say about that, about this one though, so far. I'm with you. I have a pretty set opinion. I think on this one, I kind of stuck with, I got, unfortunately throughout from the beginning to the end, I think my opinion was unwavering on this one. Yeah. And I think another problem is that if, fixates too much on the psychological in the competitions and so like yes i love the psychological aspect that's what really pulls us in as humans right uh, we want to see people overcome persevere and dig deep into their heart right and soul and come out in victory or whatever <laughs> but <laughs> there's not enough of the physical effort depicted to really i think match it and so it kind of has one side of the equation and not the other side of the equation like you said there's not a lot of like detail in, in the mechanics of running or high jumping either. Uh, maybe the most interesting part is when she gets injured and the like tit for tat feud that comes on afterwards between the coach and Tori about, you know, how she changed where her tape was and mm. how that, that led to her injury. I think that that's kind of interesting, but it was, you know, kind of a secondary afterthought uh, in terms of an underdog film and overrated film, we're already on the sort of flow where do you put it and what's your, like, I guess your final comments on that? Well, again, like I said, this one most people haven't heard of. So preface it with that. I would call it still overrated though, to be honest. Uh, it's not what I'd go back. Like I said, other than, I said, other than if you want a quick, easy A in a film course, um, I probably wouldn't watch this again. It was just narratively weak is my biggest problem with this. Strong execution on the cinematography, but the narrative was pretty weak and with weak acting it just doesn't deliver it has a cool like i like what it's going for i will say i think it has a good thesis like we said like we get the thesis and whatnot it sets that up but like it doesn't conclude it well i mean i'll preface this too saying that on paper this film sounds like my my thing my cup of tea i love mumblecore films for example like make a joe swanberg movie or a lynn shelton movie 
And I'm there. I'm all for it. Like these small little quirky movies that, you know, are less narrative, more nuanced, more interpersonal, but it might be the datedness of it. It might be the quality of the images, uh, but I, I, I was never pulled into this. And so on that level, it's overrated for me because I, I heard Pauline Kell love this. I heard Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars. You know, there's talks of it like in kind of criterion collection level, like uh, possibilities for this movie. And so like, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to get a real avant-garde slice of life film. And yes, it's a slice of life film for sure. I'm not going to deny that. I just never felt like it was a slice of real life. I feel like town, uh, as I had read, like was writing about some observations he made at UCLA working out for a while, but I don't feel like he really knew these characters. I don't, I don't know. These characters, oddly enough, felt very fabricated. And that's strange because what he's going for is like to make them as real and casual as possible. I don't know. They just didn't feel like they had enough tethering to like someone's real memories and like experiences and nostalgia yeah. or anything like that. And they're too cerebral. And so the approach oddly lacked the humanism that it needs. So like it's a very cerebral approach to my new show, which I, d- I don't appreciate at the end of the day. Mm. So interesting endeavor, but not my favorite by any stretch of the imagination. So let's get into some of the reviews that we've already foreshadowed quite a bit. And there'll be some interesting takes uh, out there that I'm looking forward to talking about. All right. So we're going to switch gears here to our critical review section of the episode. As usual, we're going to start with our Rotten Tomatoes reviews. All right. So our tomato meter gave it 73%. Uh, critics seem to like it for the most part, uh, while audiences give a score of 52% split, really, right, uh, on this one in terms of the casual audiences. Um, I can see why critics like it, though. Well, I can see a 73 for this, like we discussed. There's there's enough enough intent in this movie that comes through, of the director's intent that comes through where the critical eye can engage with. It's like, you know, there's enough of that you can engage with. Um, I think that's why it speaks to critics, I guess, those who liked it. Um, but on the, on the other hand, though, like, as we discussed, I feel like some of those are a little trite. Uh, some of the grander uh, displays of, um, of really just literary analysis or literary um, symbolism, really. But with that, uh, let's move on into the actual reviews of critics. Let me go ahead and start this off with Peter Hartlab from the San Francisco Chronicle uh, writes, Robert Towns direction can be frustrating. At one point, Donnelly and Hemingway run up a sand dune for what seems like five minutes but the result is 50% more realistic than the average sports film. Now this was, I thought was interesting because I agree with the first part, like direction can be frustrating, but I like the sand dune scene just from a, just nitpicky, just because I've, I've, I've been at the area. I would like to see the sand dune from the other angle. So you can see how steep it is. I think that would have really helped with uh, what was conveying. But I love how slow that scene was. And as we said, it was one of those punctuations on the, on a subtextual, uh, on some subtext of the idea of the killer instinct theme. Right. That's really what that what that really punctuates. But again, I thought that was pretty realistic, though. Having been on, in that dune and run up it and seeing like you know you always almost always end up on all fours by the top, right? I, I like the slow motion. I appreciated that. I thought that was one of the more realistic scenes. So I thought this is interesting that that was the scene that was called out. I feel like there's a lot of other scenes I, that stand out that I, I would have said were less realistic and more um, artistic. Yeah, and it's weird. It's 50% more realistic than the average sports film. Why did you say 50% more? I'm not getting this pun or cliche. He's saying it's less or more realistic. What's That's your what take? I'm saying. Yeah, 
That's what I'm saying. Cause it's a 50% thing. It makes it's like the half glass, half empty, half full thing. That's what I'm saying. To me, it comes off as negative, but you're right. It could be a positive thing, I guess, but like, it's not saying it's definitively more realistic than sports films. That's one of the things I, I kind of nitpicking with, with this quote, but the, for those of you listening, uh, feel free to uh, correct us on this. What, what do you think about this? It's bizarre. It's one of the weirdest sentences I've ever read <laughs> in a weird way. Uh, that's why I was perplexed on the whole time. So I'm going to jump in with two reviews or two just blurbs from uh, critics because they're diametrically opposed in one of the most fascinating ways. So Janet Singleton writes for Big Mama Rag, how this film sees a woman's body is for American cinema revolutionary. Um, So this review was in 2020. So it was a recent review. Mm. Another one's recent too. And it's by Camille Kittrell from Sojourner. And she, she writes, the camera too often records and predicts what a lascivious man would want to see rather than an aesthetic observer. Very, very interesting to put these right next to each other because yeah. I can't not bring up the gender. They're both female critics. One sees the depiction revolutionary. Like it's an exaltation of the woman body, of the woman's body, or it's at least, like I said before, a deromanticization of it in a refreshing way. The other one sees it as like a lewd gaze and I saw both. And that, that's what was this weird in between for me. Uh-huh. It was just the liminality of like, is this just kind of peeping Tom, like uh-huh. voyeuristic film, or is this something else? True, though. That's one thing I like that, that like you said, particularly the timelines, like for these two, 2019 and 2020. Like, I can't help but look at the word revolutionary, such a, it's a judgment on the time. It's assuming that all old movies are ignorant of of experience are ignorant of all all old movies portray women's bodies badly is the thesis of that statement which i i will say is completely incorrect you can find old movies that like th- that depart and i think that's what this does it's a departure because it's a departure we get this split thing but i, I think it's very i think you have to point out though like the praise and the assumption on one side and at the same time, like the, the idea that it's automatically all male gaze i think we have to discuss that's not true um there's a deliberate a didactic point to make a switch, as we say, either from Chris's relationships, from her relationship with her female lover to her relationship with her male lover, the gay switches there and it's deliberate, right? Like you say, it's, it's doing that on purpose. And I think both of these uh, kind of, both of these quotes do reduce the film to something I, I, don't, I don't think is necessarily there. Like I said, I think there's enough evidence and enough intent on the filmmaker and enough examples we could pull out, like as we said, that the gaze shifts enough that it's really not just one directional. And it goes with the, it goes with the text too, as we said, with the coach and the athletes and the way that everyone kind of just gets off. And I don't mean gets off on each other. I mean, they just get off morally. If they're all complicit in this thing and this weird hierarchical structure and it's all complicated and it's all very corrupt, <laughs> their relationships, uh, put it that way, uh, whether they're in love or not, you can, you can, that's a whole nother argument. I think is that's a valid argument in this text is whether or not our two main characters are actually in love or they're just competitive and, you know, they're just, it's a fling. There's all sorts of, of texts, of, of subtext with that. But uh, yeah, I agree. I feel like it's an interesting uh, North and South Pole kind of response to this. To, to the nudity, as we said, which is, there's a lot of, but to compare this to like other, I'll say lesbian cinema, like a movie like Bound, it's completely different, right? Bound's much more erotic, sexual, but also liberating. Again, much more 90s, but, but again, it can be seen through a lens of revolutionary who aren't initiated. 
Yeah, uh, quickly on a few things you brought up. Uh, I, I also was thinking about, you know, other films where it's uh, centered around a lesbian couple like Carol or Blue is the Warmest Color, right? And well, Blue is the Warmest Color is interesting because it's very central, but also just very raw, very emotionally strong. And you brought up the fact that you don't even feel like they're really in love. And I don't either. And the thing that both of those films had was they were about love, like this, mm-hmm. this dangerous love in, in the sense of Carol, actually, like a liaison. And in Blue is Warmest Color, a very naturalistic love, but one that's just so filled with realism that you're just, you're just taken in. You're like, wow, this is a depiction of like a true love story on, on not like a grandiose level, but on a, on a very muted, ordinary level, which is what this is kind of going after, but I, I think doesn't have the emotional beats and maybe it is because in weird ways this film is also just about jealousy and envy um, and competitiveness right and kind of spite so yeah i you say a lot of good stuff there uh what other review did you draw towards from bob thomas short one but the leads are convincingly athletic athletic the characters well drawn just because i agree the first part the leads are convincingly athletic we talk about this a lot in these running movies like we said uh without limits i thought was one that was shows athleticism pretty well this one does too and I think it's that influence, as we said, of Olympiad, right? Uh, the way he's trying to both invert some of those techniques or subvert some of those techniques and kind of like pay homage to that really pays off visually, as we've discussed in this. But the characters, I, I agree, they're not well drawn. As we said, there's too much ambiguity and too many loose ends, I will say, by the end of the text for me to really agree with that the idea that they're like completely, they're not really, they're not, they're static characters, really. They're not very round. Mm-hmm. Um, the way they change by the end, they're not much further about uh, the end of the movie than they were in the beginning. When we look at our three main characters, our coach, Chris, and Tori. So I have to disagree with that last part. Yeah. And I found, once again, another one two punch this is by richard Schickel from time magazine and he wrote personal best is likable precisely because it is so unembarrassed it definitely is unembarrassed it's unashamed it's unabashed right it has some of the the most embarrassing scenes that it just shoots with a very uh stolid and bold brazen lens right like we're not embarrassed of showing you this in any way shape or form and so i can see being impressed by that then we have Pamela Kessler at Washington Post saying, but personal best only jogs along sometimes. It suffers from fleshing out and definitely a pun about the nudity there. But it's, I think she's also talking about how like it's very fleshly in a sense that it's showing you all these like embarrassing or ordinary or quotidian moments, but they, they lack like the right, I don't know, poignancy or depth and they lack the kinetic quality you need from a sports movie to also work. So it's just a little too stagnant in that sense. Yeah. Um, so interesting. I think they are also on very different ends of the same topic here, where one really enjoys this sort of like free floating depiction of, of life and its quiet embarrassments. The other one wants like a story of like Olympian or heroic nature at times, at least, right? It's just like something that has some linear life, some vitality, yeah. right? Um, a pulse in its veins <laughs> at times. It was just oddly, it, it feels a lot of lifeless a lot. And so before we get to Letterboxd real quick, Bruce McCabe at Boston Globe, he says a lot, but but one thing he says is that it's a, a film about the arduous process of working out sexual identity in a narcissistic society and culture. I find that find it interesting, but I don't get the narcissistic part so much in this story is do you think that he's talking about like the fact they're like egotistically involved in success on their athletic pursuits 
I don't know, because that's one of the things I feel about the story is like going back to, like we said, these other running stories, those dudes are super narcissistic, particularly, like I said, all the prefontaines, the whole point of it is how narcissistic he was. And that's like part of his uh, myth. These, I, I agree, they're, they're, their stories are so intertwined. And like I said, they're so their motivations are both clear and then ambiguous in the end that I don't feel like they're true narcissists. Maybe our coach, just because of his end so mean. And like we said, the way he kind of manipulates things. But he's also one of the weird ones who has some like truths here and there about their relationship. He does deliver like a hard truth and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't think our main characters really fit that description though. Yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't really catch the narcissism here. Maybe because it was so much based around Chris, who is sometimes petty, sometimes immature, but always but, very empathetic. Yeah, the thesis is she needs to be more of a narcissist if she wants to be like, you know, she wants to win a gold medal. Like you need to care more about yourself and quit worrying about everyone else aside of all the coach keeps selling her. And he's right. Like, yeah. if you look at all of our other stories of sports movies. Like, no, no, I agreed there. So, uh, let's switch gears, get into the hot takes on Letterbox real quick. And Letterbox, the overall score is a 3.2. Um, there's not a whole lot of reviews on this. I'm going to start off really quick with another super funny review by Tintin Quarantino. <laughs> <laughs> Good name. Yeah. Uh, he gave it three stars and he wrote, Robert Town is a pervert beyond any doubt. The movie, all capital letters. So it's a title. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I'm into it. I want to know uh, what he thinks of like Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> like, I, want to, I want to see like some of these review, people write reviews for some of these like really just audacious, like absolute hardcore Mel Gaze movies from the 80s. I want to know what they think of those ones. <laughs> me too. Me too. Actually, I got another funny one. Uh, I thought this was pretty well written. And uh, I agree with that, I guess. Uh, this comes from, I like this name too, Dinosauroidable. <laughs> I'm going to go with really cool name too. Exhilarating worship of the human body, dramatically entire. Kissing, cramping, belching, touching, farting, swelling, jumping, falling, sweating, loving, peeing, and running. That's the review. <laughs> I, I, I like the highlights there. It's kind of like we talk about. It's all the... Uh, Again, the physicality, and there's also some of the awkwardness there, like references to the awkward things with the peeing, uh, again, the sweating, the way it's kind of used, but as we talked about as a cinematic device, but it's also weirdly sexual at times. Yeah, I like I just like the style of that of that little review there. I love that one because it really does try to get that. It, it's definitely like into the human body. It's into <clears throat> the somatic carnal elements of the human body. Yeah, I'm into that. Uh, I have one from Jamie Rebinall, uh, four and a half stars out of five. And Jamie writes, a film like Personal Best could be easy enough to rip apart given its subject matter and intense focus on the female body, but Town never feels like he's allowing the film to give into the gaze. Nonetheless, it's, it is astonishing how sensitively Town approaches the subject at hand, given that this is his directorial debut. Uh, I forgot that. This is his very first film, um, but allows every moment of the relationship that the women form within one another to blossom. Hemingway and Donnelly are fantastic, but it's astonishing to me that given the time in which this was made, its portrayal of bisexuality was as progressive as it was. I'll stop there, but I do think that there's something progressive here about it's not trying to be so progressive. I feel like, oddly enough, in 2021, we, they, we would try to make it like a revolutionary film, right? Yeah. And I do agree with these people who are saying that the, what makes it more revolutionary is that it's not trying to overtly be revolutionary. Again, it's like you said, it's it's celebrating, but also in the closet still is a big part of it, but it's not spoken because again, with the context of the time, whatnot is a big deal. I think uh, that a modern audience, I think would take it for granted to some degree. 
But yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that in that regard. Yeah, I mean, but it's not like this like swooping romance, like you know, Brokeback yeah. Mountain or something, oh, no. or or like this against all odds. It's just like two normal people, and the normalness of it is what makes it so groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. It, I, I do, I do get that. I, I, if it does resonate with you, I, I, I'm all for it on that level. I can vibe with that. I mean, it didn't just because of like cinematic reasons, but I appreciate that. Like the time it is showing this story and the fact that it's not trying to like bang you over the head with how like just socially progressive it is yet it is is quality stuff so so i I do totally agree with jamie on that point what else did you find on letterboxd oh carrying on with the theme of how progressive this movie is amy andrews gave us three stars and she writes this movie made me roughly 23 percent gayer taking the current toll up to 684 percent congratulations amy i'm glad that toll is going up um i just thought that was a ambiguous way i don't know if she likes it or not i think i thought it was a plus for it right three stars uh i just thought it was, that one kind of stood out there for me you have any serious ones that you want to go over for this one no i'm gonna actually just touch on a few points neuroprismatic cinephile who's got really interesting takes i follow her she notes first of all that i did i uh, stand corrected it is a criterion film so i mean this is up in the criterion collection and that's a pantheon that i really respect mm-hmm. so for those out there it is worthy of that. It's one of those criterion ones that I don't actually enjoy, but I think it's worthy of that. I think that for that curated collection, this movie is doing interesting things that are renegade and iconoclastic for its time period. And it's a work of true art. I I just, it's not a work of true art that resonated with me, but yeah. Did you find anything serious in particular for you? Because that, that was the only other thing that I really pulled out for me. Honestly, no, I didn't really see anything else uh, jumping out with anything we haven't really covered yet. Awesome. So that brings us to finally the end of our marathon. Uh, we can call it a marathon because we've taken long breaks. We're, we're lazy runners. And if we were in Tokyo Olympiad, we'd be the dudes like at the water station for a good few months between episodes. But we finally reached the end of our marathon with our bellies filled with Gatorade and electrolytes and not a single sore muscle but uh <laughs> out of these six or seven movies and we'll list them all uh we have to give our ranking our final ranking so without further ado i'm gonna go over them for the listeners and we're gonna give you which films we like best in this mini tournament of summer olympic theme racing film so we started off way back in the middle of summer with Without Limits, the other Robert Town film. So at least like that full circle. I hope you do. Um, then we went into Chariots of Fire, the Oscar winning classic. Um, then we did Tokyo Olympiad, the Criterion documentary. So we had two Criterion films here. Then we moved on to the other Prefontaine film, just Prefontaine. Finally, we did Race and now Personal Best. So what is your list? And feel free to extrapolate as much as you would like on any of these Okay. I guess I'll go in descending order. Actually, descending order is kind of hard too. I know which two I want on the bottom and I'm kind of grappling with them and I don't want to like have like too much recency bias. I feel like, all right, I feel like I got this. I'm going to go with Chariots of Fire. I think is probably my number, my last one coming in last. I think I was just overrated. That's the definition of overrated so far for this podcast. I had such prestige behind it. It had the the Roger Ebert seal of approval and whatnot on it. But yeah, I thought that one was very underwhelming. It had all the themes and stuff that every other movie touched on from the athleticism to racism, to war, to the significance of the Olympics. All of it's there. It's just not really composed uh, in a way that held up, I would say. But um, 
then coming after that, I would say is what we just watched, uh, just discussed today would be personal best. Because like, like you said, uh, it does stand out. Uh, it has merit. It has its flaws, but it is a pretty progressive take, right? As we discussed, I can see why, like when you said it's in the Criterion Collection, I can see why it get in there. But the reason I was struggling with these two at the end is they're both two I really wouldn't come back to watch again. I'd probably like, I'd recommend, I think, I think I'd end up recommending personal best more. For, uh, like I said, more of like an intellectual exercise in, in uh, watching film, I guess. But other than that, you won't really catch me like throwing that one out there as a must-see. When we get into the newer ones, or when we get into the Prefontaine movies, um, I liked Without Limits was awesome. So I'm going to put Prefontaine before that. I thought that was a little, took too many liberties, I'd say, with the mythos compared with the uh, Without Limits. And I really like Billy Crudup's performance in that one. That was one of the better uh, performances of we've gone over actually on this podcast. I really enjoyed uh, and then in first would be Tokyo Olympiad. Uh, that was though long. It was worth watching. It's particularly if you mean it's it's a cool documentary. It's like as we discussed the how it's experimental, but it's also like like as we as I talk about, if you're a fan of like cartoons, just good music and classical music and cool images. It's it's such a cool thing to watch. Um, I really did enjoy that. And and then seeing the way as we've discussed today, many of these directors clearly took from this in addition to uh, uh, Reifenstahl's uh, Olympiad, I think, and really applied that, particularly uh, Town. I think uh, you can see that's part of his signature is subverting those, that slow motion, or you really using that slow motion technique to his advantage. But yeah, I think Tokyo Olympiad was probably the best one of the group. Ooh, fun, fun, fun. I think we actually align way more than our hockey one <laughs> and Disney ones. So this is where we team up the most yet. So number seven, Prefontaine, the Jared Leto one. Um, sorry, Jared Leto, but no, no go for me. Uh, I like the suits, but <laughs> the histrionics and the bad acting at times, mm. it just didn't cut it for me. And it was tough because there was another Prefontaine film in this collection that was just leaps and bounds better. So number six, I'm going to move up, Chariots of Fire, the best picture winner, all the way down at six. It's just a little staid and uh, stuffy, mm -hmm. a little too British. And that sounds so like anglophobic or something, but uh, it's not. It just eh, didn't, didn't really work for me. I thought that the narrative of anti-Semiticism was interesting in theory, but didn't pan out correctly or as fully as it should have. And the compare and contrast between our two characters in Chariots of Fire, just it, there wasn't enough there for me to really uh, get, you know, entranced by the film. Um, mm -hmm. Next for me is Personal Best. I'm really impressed by its ambition, by its place in the American film. I think if you're like a film scholar, absolutely check this out. It's worthy of its criterion a spot and i'm a champion of it in all those senses just personally it was two hours that i just didn't really enjoy and i did on an intellectual or emotional level i said that already so i think that those two elements have to viscerally work for me for me to really really get behind something so yeah it's it's a very cold recommendation i have for that but i do recommend it even though i think it's overrated and it's only fifth on my list the next for me is race i thought race was by the books by the numbers sports movie pretty good i really loved a few scenes in it i forgot I, about race. my bad <laughs> you totally forgot that when i was going to call you out on that so as i go i'm going to have you wiggle that in there i also want you to wiggle in flat ball because i forgot we included yeah. flat ball because it had the future of flat ball as an olympic sport in it um so I try to integrate that as well. But yeah, race is, you know, just a really feel good sports movie. 
mediocre, B minus C plus in the best way. Well acted enough. Costumes are decent. You know, it's enjoyable few hours. Reminded me of going to the cinema as a kid. Number three for me, because I have flat ball on my list, is Without Limits. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Maybe a little too strong there, but I thought that this one had really good character building, a really good dynamic between the coach and Prefontaine, some great lines, a good screenplay, some really funny tidbits about Nike, a few awkward moments. But overall, I thought Without Limits was a film with a, a strong thesis and a good philosophical lens on, on sport and what it means to be an athlete. Number two, Flatball. I just loved learning about this niche culture and learning from Raj about the intricacies of trying to be a professional flatball player and uh, all of the, the ins and outs of a burgeoning sport that's not yet really earned its spot in the like culture, but has its its real passionate subculture. Mm-hmm. I just loved all the elements about it. I think that, you know, as a film, it's it's whatever. It's a documentary that tells you a lot. I was really taking notes frantically and on the edge of uh, my bed because I watched on my bed, but just like really into it. I was really every, you know, new part of that film. I wanted to learn more about flatball and was learning something new that I was kind of taken aback by. I did not know about this, this sport much. And I came out really into it. So it was a success and a win for me. And number one, Tokyo Olympiad, just such a like quirky oddly like scientific film, like scientific in the sense, like it's very meticulous, but then like you said, it's very cartoonish too. It's erratic, creatively unmoored and yet so, so rigorous too. It's got like both elements and I don't know. It's just like a masterwork of, of its kind. And the fact that it's from the the fifties Tokyo Olympics, the images are beautiful, beautiful images of film. And the politics behind it are hilarious. Uh, the hijinks, basically, of the film, the subversion of the Japanese government to release what he released and to fixate on what he fixated on when they gave him so much money and commissioned him to create this like kind of propagandistic film. Uh, I just can't not but love that story. I think there's a, a great film about that in itself, about the making of this, like a fictional film that that would be a great screenplay to write. So yeah, that's my list. Pretty similar. I want to, I'm curious, where would you put flatball and race in your... Pretty close to you, like you said, actually. I, with race, I'm going back. I feel like I'd put race ahead of the Prefontaine and then flatball. I, I really like flatball. I'd probably put it at number two too, actually, I think. Because I really like the, just the angle of the dudes from Boston versus dudes from New York how wild that one team was some of the story, you know, it's that's the, the hook that that documentary had was, was enough, had enough drama to be like reality television. And I like the way it's explored through like, again, the idea of how it helped grow the sport and, you know, this kind of like larger life characters. I, I was for a low budget documentary. I was executed pretty well. Um, so yeah, I, I'd put that number two. That was a surprise. That was a, definitely a surprise um, on this, in this little uh, category we, we recently did. That was a surprise gem. Surprise gem, and also narrated by now a a real killer, a, yeah. a real life murderer. Um, who would have known, right? <laughs> Mr. Baldwin himself, public enemy number one, uh, depending on who you talk to, what side of the street you're on. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the tragic dimensions of that movie, who would have thought? He would probably never get that gig again. Exactly. Yeah, go watch it now before it gets pulled. And before it gets pulled from the shelves. We kid, we kid uh, about topics that we shouldn't be kidding about. Anyways, we're finally done with this segment. Pretty stoked actually to be done. It was great, but I'm I'm ready to move on. And our next is the Untold series on Netflix. We love this series. 
Um, it's by the Way Brothers who did uh, Wild Wild Country, probably one of the greatest things I've seen ever. I love that documentary. Um, but they also made, I think, six or I don't know, five, four, six, whatever. It's one of those. It's like a docuseries. Each one is just wall to wall batshit crazy, to be honest. And I'm, I'm stoked for every single one. You're going to not want to miss these. So are you, which one of the Untold series are you most excited for? Oh man, they tie, they tie in pretty well with the sports we've covered so far, which is what I'm most excited to kind of look back at some of these movies we talked about. I think the one with the Danbury Trashers might be my favorite one so far. I haven't got through all of them yet, though. But that's that's my that's where I, I'd say right now. But the one with the Mouse of the Palace is is a close second. That was a really good one too. Uh, what about you? Which one would yeah. you say? Ready to get into? So you have a you actually have a few that you still haven't touched upon, and yes. so I, I mean, I was going to say Malice of the Palace for some reasons because I remember it so vividly as a kid, but I don't know. There's also Breaking Point, and it's about Marty Fish, a tennis player that I've never heard of. That like it's like your second best tennis player, right behind uh, you know all the the big names that are household American tennis player names like Andre Agassi and so forth. And we never hear of him. And it's the story of his uh, mental health, which is a very topical thing these days, but it's really well done um, mm. and, and a fascinating ride. Um, and such a likable Malou, just in general. Uh, they just, everyone just feels very real. And um, there's also another one about Tour de Force female boxer that is it's just nuts. And that one's going to be a ton of fun to do. So I'm, I'm excited for all of them. So without further ado, look forward to those. And thanks for chiming in. See you guys next time.